This is Leah Jones, Director of Financial Planning at Hightower Bethesda. Thanks for joining me today as I explore topics that I hope arm you with the ability to make smart financial decisions. Hightower Bethesda nor myself are recommending cryptocurrency. If this is an appropriate investment for you is a one-on-one conversation you should have with your financial advisor. As you'll learn from this conversation, it is an evolving space. With that being said, cryptocurrency is an interesting and emerging investment and worthy of a better understanding. So today we're gonna go straight to the best resource we can find in the space to provide more context. My guest today is Michael Sunshine. He is the CEO of Grayscale Investments. You might have heard of them. They're the world's largest digital currency asset manager. Michael oversees the strategic direction and growth of the business and maintains relationships with key stakeholders. Since 2013, Grayscale has emerged as the world's largest digital currency asset manager with $40 billion in assets under management. I'm sure that number fluctuates every day, so don't hold me to it, but they're large. It hosts the largest Bitcoin and Ethereum investment funds in the world. They were the first to bring a digital currency investment product to the public market, and they commit to doing so. 35% of their investors invest across multiple products, and Grayscale's products cover over 70% of the digital currency market. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about cryptocurrency, what it is, what the rationale is for owning it, differences between cryptocurrencies how it fits into someone's portfolio. We'll also dive into why it's such a polarizing topic, how a company like Grayscale does due diligence on cryptocurrencies, and how transparency and compliance come into play. Finally, if we have some time, we'll do some commentary on Elon Musk and the media. For our listeners, I'd love to start out high level. How do you explain cryptocurrency to an average person with little knowledge on the subject? Well, first of all, great to chat with you and excited to dive into all of these topics. But cryptocurrency is a complex one. And that's, you know, one of the reasons I think there's such a great opportunity around education. I think for a lot of folks, this represents a pretty meaningful departure from what constitutes a currency, what constitutes a store of value, how these have evolved over time. And what really it boils down to, and, and typically when people are kind of at the beginning phases of their cryptocurrency journey, they're really thinking about Bitcoin. So if we talk about Bitcoin specifically, it is really nothing other than software, software that was floated out onto the internet and has gained massive adoption worldwide. And rather than being created by a government or a central bank, This is an entirely decentralized protocol. And so it's governed by the group of users uh, globally who use Bitcoin. Now, whereas a government's currency is controlled by printing and retracting, setting inflation rates and targets, currencies like Bitcoin, on the other hand, not only kind of 
don't really squarely fit into the definition of a currency, but also some folks may look at them as a commodity or as a store of value or as a transactional mechanism. And so it doesn't really squarely fit into necessarily one bucket, but it does, however, have some really core tenants and core attributes that do govern it. So Bitcoin, for example, is verifiably scarce. There will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin ever created. Each Bitcoin is divisible to the eighth decimal place. So there are 100 million units within each Bitcoin. And the rate at which new Bitcoin come into circulation is known and predictable and is done through a process called mining, which not only governs transactions taking place on the network, but also is the mechanism that brings more Bitcoin into circulation. And today, Bitcoin is quoted on hundreds of different exchanges and order books around the world against every single currency pair one can think of. And so I, I would venture to say that for most investors thinking about digital currencies and or Bitcoin, it is going to be a meaningful departure from other areas they've invested in before and definitely does warrant a little bit of homework to, to kind of get up to speed. <laughs> a little bit of homework. Absolutely. Now, you spoke a, a lot just now to Bitcoin. And, and of course, I think that's what people hear about the most. Can you just speak a little bit about, because I know your firm does cryptocurrencies, not just Bitcoin, but you evaluate the entire universe. So can you talk a little bit about the differences between like Ethereum and then if there's any other notable cryptocurrencies that you want to discuss? Yeah, so there are actually hundreds and hundreds of digital currencies or cryptocurrencies. You know, we, we can use those terms interchangeably. The best way to think about various digital currencies or cryptocurrencies is hopefully thinking about them occupying different use cases. So you might think about precious metals, gold, silver, platinum, palladium. They're all part of the same precious metals family, but they're each used for different applications. They each have different prices. They each have different adjustable markets. And so similarly, you might analogize that to cryptocurrencies where you might look at assets like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, etc., and see that there are small differences and sometimes actually large differences in the software of these various currencies that may make them more akin to uses that differentiate from one another. And so while Bitcoin has certainly retained its seat as the most valuable digital currency out there, it has the largest market cap, there are other viable digital currencies that too have gained pretty massive adoption. And we do believe that you know the future does look like a world in which multiple digital currencies exist side by side and do occupy different use cases with each other. So you mentioned that there are hundreds of cryptocurrencies mm -hmm. out there. I don't even think people realize that. And so it kind of brings up a couple questions to mind, which I think the first one is, how does someone like, you know, me, I have a, a very well-versed background in investments, but I can tell you right now, I don't know how to evaluate a cryptocurrency or what the little nuances are between each of the technologies or the usability of the underlying code. So how does somebody evaluate a cryptocurrency when they don't really have any background and it's such a new asset class? Yeah, so I think that's a great question. And it's important because I think investors who have typically allocated to, you know, public securities, ETFs, fixed income, whatever it may be, you know, these are typically 
assets that they can look like and look at because they're cash flowing. They might be able to, you know, look at PE multiples. I mean, there's so many different, you know, tried and true ways to take a look at assets and come up with their valuation. Digital currencies, on the other hand, would be a departure from that. And so what's interesting is that they kind of don't fit into some of those traditional valuation models, but instead there's a whole different layer of intelligence that the underlying technology supporting these assets provides us. So that underlying technology is the blockchain, right? The blockchain is the public ledger that governs and captures all transactions taking place in a given digital currency. And so my team at Grayscale has actually written about this pretty extensively. We've written a paper called Valuing Bitcoin. We've written a paper called Valuing Ethereum. And we can actually look at various aspects of these ecosystems to determine leading and lagging indicators that may lead to you know, certain adjustments in price. So for example, we can look at you know, the latency of Bitcoin. So how recently has the public float of Bitcoin been moved around? Does it seem to be that balances are staying on addresses for longer periods of time? Or are they staying on addresses for a shorter period of time, which would indicate, you know, perhaps on the shorter end of the spectrum that people may be instead thinking about liquidating or selling positions or, you know, using Bitcoin for, you know, whatever commerce or buying something, goods and services, versus if, if we tend to see that balances are remaining higher, coins are being more stagnant, that people instead may be in a mode where they're amassing Bitcoin and not as interested in selling them, which wouldn't put selling pressure on, the, you know, Bitcoin's price. So, you know, there's a whole series of metrics like this that we can look at that often comes down to supply and demand. And, and ultimately shifts in supply of these assets and where they are on their respective networks. That's very interesting. So, so you're basically coming up with new valuation principles and saying, how, how do we evaluate long-term value in such a new asset class? And some things we can do are looking at balances and staying power and that type of stuff. That's very interesting. And, and definitely Correct. sounds like a good investment publication to check out this valuing Bitcoin or valuing Ethereum. Definitely some, some interesting stuff in there. So my next question is, and this is kind of related uh, to what we were just talking about, the latest cryptocurrency to hit the market hot is internet computer. To a novice like myself, it seems like there are no barriers to entry for cryptocurrency. Would you agree with that statement? Correct. And let's dive into that. So most digital currencies like Bitcoin, for example, are what are called open source protocols, open source software. Open source software means that the underlying software that governs this is on the internet and anybody can take a look at it. Anybody can download it onto their own computer. And that also means that anybody can take that software, tweak one, two, three, or a multitude of aspects of that software and use it to launch a new digital currency. So let's talk about that. So Bitcoin, for example, I shared with you, has an attribute that's core to its function that restricts the overall supply of Bitcoin to 21 million. But what if I were to download the Bitcoin software and say, you know what, the Bitcoin software is wrong. It shouldn't be 21 million Bitcoins. It should actually be 50 million, you know, Michael coins or Leah coins, whatever it may be. And so I could take that and do that and then float it out onto the internet and see how much traction it's going to get. Now, 
while the barrier to entry to create a digital currency is very low, as I just shared, the barrier to kind of adoption, I'd actually say is quite high. So when you think about the fact that there are billions and billions and billions of dollars invested in Bitcoin and other digital currencies today, those are billions and billions and billions of dollars of switching costs from these assets into other assets that may emerge. Now, if Bitcoin were to be not be an open source protocol, meaning that it was a fixed protocol, then I would have greater hesitation about its viability because that could mean that Bitcoin could be the MySpace to the eventual Facebook. But instead, because Bitcoin's open source, over time it has and it will in the future continue to integrate new features and new attributes that when other currencies come along or other protocols come along that may reveal deficiencies or flaws in the Bitcoin code, it simply can be adopted and integrated into Bitcoin so that it continues to grow and thrive and morph as the users, you know, demand changes in the protocol. Wow, that's very interesting. That was a fact that I, I definitely did not know. So very interesting. So it has a way to kind of morph as deficiencies, let's so to speak, are exposed rather than die because, you know, it moves on. Okay, very exactly. interesting. Exactly. And we've seen some of those historically, right? We've seen some changes in the Bitcoin protocol. And I'm sure over time, you know, the Bitcoin protocol and others like it will continue to be challenged by other newcomers or the demands or the uses of how we're going to be using these, you know, protocols are going to cause these networks to need to change and morph to be better suited as the user bases grow and as the use cases change. Interesting. Okay. So... Typically, and this is another kind of traditional finance thought, entry point price is important. And with crypto, this is particularly challenging because it's it's moving so quickly. It's traded 24 hours. If you were advising your mom and she committed to this concept of adding this to her longer-term portfolio, how would you advise her to get into cryptocurrency? Well, I want to kind of say two things. One, I would say digital currency investing is definitely not something for everyone. And that's to say that typically we see digital currency investors, be them individuals or institutions, tend to be people with higher risk tolerance, folks that can stomach um, a fair bit of volatility, and also people that tend to have medium to longer term time horizons for their investments. And so, while that is certainly kind of the profile that we typically see around digital currency investors, that should not negate people's interest in understanding crypto or evaluating crypto the same way that investors can canvas everything from energy to healthcare to commodities to you name it and ultimately build out a portfolio that is you know right for them and, and their investment needs and so we are you know feel very strongly that digital currencies are here to stay they're not going to go away we do believe they will occupy a slice of investors portfolios but not every investor should be investing in crypto and because it is early for this asset class, because it's only been around for the last you know, decade or so, many investors you know, start with a small allocation. They probably put 25 or 50 basis points of their overall portfolio into crypto and over time scale up as they you know, get increasingly comfortable with it. I'd say on the high end of the spectrum, we tend to see people more aggressively 
entering crypto or getting to a position that probably ultimately occupies maybe four to five percent of their portfolio. But because it's an early stage investment, maybe you analogize it to an early stage technology or, you know, a, a, an asset that, you know, doesn't have as much, you know, history as other assets. We also remind people to not invest more than they can afford to lose. And, and that's a really important thing to remember. I think that's all all solid advice. And just to clarify for any of our listeners, basis points is 0.25 or 0.50%. So not not 25% or not 50%, but 0.25 to 0.50. Um, yes. 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 <laughs> My next next question, I think this is where people, the general public, get very excited about Bitcoin or cryptocurrency is how can this become mainstream or used in everyday life? So where do you see this technology being implemented in the future? Well, I think one thing that frustrates me at the moment is that people think that because they're not using Bitcoin to buy a cup of coffee or, you know, using Ethereum to, you know, pay their rent, that somehow these protocols have failed. And that is certainly not the case. So I want to, you know, be clear about that. I think the use case in the developed world is more thinking about Bitcoin, you know, perhaps as a store of value or as a digital gold. It is certainly being thought of and used used as, you know, a speculative investment and a speculative asset. However, I will say in the developing world, it, it is certainly becoming a very meaningful place where perhaps folks can store value or own an asset other than their local currencies, which may be experiencing hyperinflation, hyperinflation or, you know, being debased or somehow are, are seeing their purchasing power deteriorated. So I don't think that there is a near-term use case in the developed world for Bitcoin to kind of replace the U.S. dollar or to undo the, the financial system we have. While the financial system we have is certainly not as efficient, fast, or cheap as it could be, it works, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. So I do think that there's, of course, going to be a role for Bitcoin in investor portfolios, but not necessarily kind of a, I'm going to go use Bitcoin to, to live my everyday life, at least in the near term. And you you raised a point actually about how people think about it. And this is another kind of, I would say, topic of, of confusion in general. I mean, what type of asset is cryptocurrency? Is it you know, currency? Is it an alternative? Does it kind of depend on where you live, how it fits into your portfolio? I think there's probably three broad buckets that investors kind of look at Bitcoin in. So one is folks certainly look at it as a store of value. That is certainly a, a wide held narrative amongst investors. So I think investors have historically thought about gold and some other assets as a flight to safety or as an asset that they could go to when things are, are kind of rocky in the markets. And now that cohort of assets to think about also includes Bitcoin. Bitcoin and gold share a lot of attributes, but where Bitcoin starts to really outshine gold is that it actually is verifiably scarce. It is far more divisible and far more portable. And so investors may think that Bitcoin is perhaps a, a digital gold or digital store of value much more suited for a digital age, which we are certainly living in, whereas gold may have been much better suited to a world characterized by physical exchanges, which is you know one that, that we clearly have gravitated away from. 
I think other investors may think of it, as I shared, as an early stage technology investment. So we often hear about folks saying, well, if I would have known the internet would have become as impactful as it has, you know, 25, 30 years ago, then I, you know, certainly would have been more aggressive about, you know, being involved with it. And then I think a lot of other folks think about Bitcoin and other digital currencies as a transaction mechanism. And they look at how well it's being utilized to move value around the world, disrupt remittance services, payment networks, and really the ability to, to move value pretty much anywhere and pretty much instantly and also pretty much for free. So those are kind of the, the three largest buckets across which I think investors think about it. Okay. So shifting gears a little bit here, and, and you've seen this in the media a lot, especially lately. If you're a business that decides to accept Bitcoin, generally they take Bitcoin and then they exchange it to dollars. How can these companies accept Bitcoin and take the risk? And I'm just using Bitcoin because that's the one that they're using currently, but you know, certainly this could be expanded to multiple cryptocurrencies and take the risk without potentially exposing their companies to additional volatility from processing these transactions in this manner? Yeah, so there are a variety of companies that provide merchant processing services. So if a customer is paying a company for goods or services in Bitcoin, the merchant processors can actually either convert the Bitcoin to fiat, to US dollars, euros, yen, CAD, whatever it may be in real time, and do 100% of it. So the company takes no you know, FX risk at all. Or in other instances, companies want to amass these positions and, and don't look to convert it, but rather you know, will start to hold Bitcoin on, on their balance sheet. So the same way that we rely on Amex and Visa and PayPal and all these other legacy financial networks to process our transactions, there are now other companies that are helping to process Bitcoin transactions for merchants of all shapes and sizes. Do you have any knowledge of kind of like what percent of companies are using the merchant services option versus just being open to holding them longer term? You know, I don't. I think I, you know, the best that I've seen is companies are continuing to add this as an option. It's kind of gone from a why to a why not. If companies are already letting you pay them, whether it's cash, credit card, you know, check, wire, you know, PayPal, you know, Google Pay, whatever it may be, they kind of say, well, if I can potentially have more people transact with me or do business with me, why wouldn't I also accept Bitcoin, especially if there are people who can, you know, help to to process those transactions and mitigate any kind of FX risk that that they may be taking. Right. That makes a lot of sense. So cryptocurrency is just a very polarizing topic with some people believing this will totally replace fiat currency and others believing it's a total scam. Can you speak to this? I mean, the strong emotional reaction that people have to this topic. Yeah, I mean, cryptocurrency is certainly not a scam. That's a big generalization. There are certainly cryptocurrencies that out there that maybe don't have any real world use cases or applications. And so you definitely have to do your homework looking at the landscape of assets and figuring out what makes sense for you and what doesn't. But as a whole, it would be a over, you know, it would be a big generalization to say cryptocurrencies are a scam. 
I do think that we have seen the incredible power of blockchain technology and their underpinning of digital assets. And so because of the transparency and security that it provides, certainly we will see in our lifetimes fiat currency move to blockchain-based systems. So you will see the US dollar on a blockchain. You're already seeing the renminbi or yuan you know, move to a blockchain-based system. And there is very much a real-world scenario where these exist side by side, both decentralized digital currencies like Bitcoin, along with a centralized digital currency like the US dollar. Got it. So my next question here, we talked a little bit about how crypto is just, you can't evaluate it with traditional financial metrics. So your team works every day to build investment products that open up access to cryptocurrency. Talk to me a little bit about that. How do you do the due diligence on these? I mean, obviously you can't do it on hundreds, but I mean, how do you identify, evaluate, and keep up with all these products? Well, it can be overwhelming for investors. So certainly what we do at Grayscale is to, you know, provide access and exposure to the asset class. You know, our business was really born at this idea of, you know, helping investors navigate crypto exposure because it can be cumbersome to figure out where to buy them, how to transfer them and how to store and safekeep them. And so today we operate 14 different investment vehicles. All of them have digital currency as the underlying investment strategy, whether it's a Bitcoin fund, Ethereum fund, or diversified fund, you know, these are all what we would broadly construe as access products. And so for us, we're in an interesting position where we're constantly, you know, scouring the landscape, looking at protocols, which, you know, we get excited about because of how they were launched, what they may be able to accomplish, or how they're being digested as solving a real world issue, looking at the founding teams, looking at the governance, looking at how the supply is coming online, looking at the integrity of the underlying blockchain, et cetera. And it's important for us to think through a lot of these different, both practical considerations as well as just fundamentals, because we're always trying to marry where we may see opportunities and to provide products around them to bring to investors and think about that in the context of, well, where are investors also telling us they're interested in deploying capital at the same time? And so we have continued to grow our product suite and will continue to grow our product suite as we continue to identify protocols that you know we think provide compelling opportunities to investors or we can open up accessibility to certain subsets of the market. Next question on transparency and compliance. So these are important topics in, in cryptocurrency. Talk to me a little bit about what it currently looks like, the transparency and compliance that we have around cryptocurrency today and how you envision that changing. Well, I think our industry has grown up tremendously. And again, one frustration that I that I have is we are, you know, sometimes kind of criticized for not moving fast enough. And there's sometimes this impatience out there. But I really do, again, want to remind people that, you know, this is, you know, Bitcoin and these assets, they've only been around for about, you know, 10 or 12 years. So I would argue we've come really far, really, really fast. You're seeing the AML and the KYC on exchanges um, continuing to, you know, continuing to get more and more scrutinized and and regulated, you're seeing 
you know, the on ramps and the off ramps into the ecosystem become highly, highly regulated. You're seeing quite a bit of transparency and guidance from regulatory regimes, whether that's the SEC, the CFTC, the IRS, FinCEN, Treasury, etc. And I think that's why it's important as an investor that you you really do diligence on who you may be transacting with, because it probably is not going to be whoever you've typically used to give yourself exposure to equities or fixed income or, or other assets. And so I know certainly one of our competitive advantages at Grayscale is, you know, working through our sister firm, which is a regulated entity. It's a broker dealer. You know, we're subject to all the AML and KYC procedures that, you know, you typically are used to seeing. And then we've also really worked to make sure that our products are regulated as possible. Our Bitcoin and Ethereum products are SEC reporting companies. So they're really held to the same, you know, regulatory disclosure and reporting obligations as you see for public companies and, you know, ETFs and all kinds of other investment instruments. So for us, you know, that's kind of core to what we do and and core to our a lot of our differentiation. So quick clarification for our listeners, AML is anti-money laundering and KYC is know your client. And these are protocols that are enforced on all kind of financial institutions in the United States. So that's great to know that, you know, that that type of stuff is is happening. And obviously the SEC, everything kind of rolls up to. I know one kind of topic too that's still out there. So so you guys are a regulated entity, but not all of the not all of the entities where you can buy and sell cryptocurrency are, right? If they're kind of buying it directly from some of these sources. So, you know, I know something that's kind of a hot topic of debate is taxes associated with these because, you know, cryptocurrency has grown so much. And, you know, is there any concern if these start becoming more subject to, and I'm just going to speak to United States taxes here, because uh, we all know Uncle Sam doesn't like to not get paid when other people are making, mm. <laughs> when Americans are making money, right? So, so how does that change anything? It doesn't. I mean, we've now seen on the, you know, IRS form 1040 a, a, you know, box to select as to whether or not you've transacted in, you know, digital currencies in, in a given tax year. I and mean, we've seen guidance from the IRS that has declared, you know, assets like Bitcoin property. So they get, you know, long and short term capital gains treatment like you do when you buy or sell a stock. So we certainly would strongly ensure that people who are transacting in digital currencies or in grayscale products are in fact paying their taxes like they do for all of their other investments. Okay. And does grayscale, you guys issue some type of tax document? We, we do for all of our products. Have to. Got it. Right. Okay. So I know you get asked about this all the time, <laughs> um, but you know, Elon Musk's influence on cryptocurrency has been hard to ignore. So first he comes out as a big supporter and says Tesla's can be purchased with Bitcoin. And then Tesla's taken a huge stake in Bitcoin. Then he goes back on his comments and says he can't support Bitcoin due to its excessive energy use, but he didn't sell his positions as kind of, you know, there was a lot of back and forth there. So, you know, my, my question is kind of thoughts on Elon and, and just the broader ability of crypto prices to be influenced by the media. Well, I think this is a growing ecosystem. And I think we've definitely seen over the last year plus 
that social media has created or has been an increasingly important aspect of the investment universe. And this has affected not only digital currencies, but stocks as well. I think it's exceedingly encouraging from my seat to see folks like Elon Musk and Jack Dorsey and Michael Saylor and all these kind of visionaries very much come out publicly in support of digital currencies, whether they themselves are investing in them or they're putting them on their company's balance sheets. You know, that's certainly not something that was happening 12 or or even 18 months ago. I do think, though, that folks like these must ensure that they realize that they are, you know, yielding quite a bit of power and influence over what they're saying on social media. And, you know, one topic that certainly has come up or that Elon Musk has brought to light recently are some of the environmental concerns related to Bitcoin and its energy use. And it's not necessarily a new topic or something that we haven't previously thought of or been concerned about in our industry. But we really view it more as an opportunity. Like all nascent industries, they're going to, you know, continue to morph and grow. And we are seeing, you know, Bitcoin mining and energy usage continue to move towards increasingly renewable energy sources. So you know, I think it's um it's an interesting inflection point for our industry where, you know, it's only in the last 12 or 18 months that you're seeing some of these very notable leaders and in some cases very, you know, accomplished and very well followed investors as well come out in support of Bitcoin and very publicly talking about the fact that they have positions in Bitcoin and other digital currencies. And we really only see that trend continuing throughout 2021 and beyond. All right, Michael. Well, you gave us a lot of really good, insightful information. In closing, any any other final remarks you want to put out there for our listeners? Well, I, I would say the following. One, digital currencies are complex. And again, like we started at the beginning of our conversation, are a departure from a lot of the you know, current investments you may have or historically have had. And so one of the best things that folks can do to kind of demystify or break down something that maybe seems a little bit foreign is to actually get involved. And so, you know, have your choice of a given digital currency exchange or order book or wherever you want to transact, but go and buy a dollar or go buy $5 worth of Bitcoin and go send it to somebody, send it to your spouse, send it to your kids, send it to your friends, send it to your coworker and have them send it back to you. And then go look on the blockchain for your transaction. And I think what many people will find is having that firsthand experience with it will actually make it feel a lot more tangible and not as kind of mystical and and kind of hard to digest. And, you know, certainly there is no shortage of resources on the Grayscale website at grayscale.com. I welcome the opportunity to be a resource to anybody looking to get smarter on the space as well. Love that. Well, great insight. I think that's a, a great kind of option to start to demystify the topic for people to do. We're going to continue to track cryptocurrency. Michael, thank you so much for your insight for all our podcast listeners. And uh, we're going to definitely keep, keep track of you. Thank you so much. Great to chat. All right.
Hightower Bethesda is a group of investment professionals registered with Hightower Securities LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. Hightower Bethesda and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This document was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of Hightower Bethesda and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors LLC or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor for related questions.